Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may you teach us to imitate you in learning to love you well and to love one another well. May we flee from those things which are bad for our soul, that our lives would be lived in glory to you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll share, I guess it's not really a secret, but sometimes it feels like maybe it is, a little secret about me. I actually really like country music. And I was telling a good friend of mine this one time, and he's a pastor at one of the evangelical churches here, and he, we give each other a hard time about our, our major differences and how we worship God, but we bond over how much we love Jesus. And he looks at me and he says, does your bishop know? And I told him, I just tell him I think it's Gregorian chant, so it's, it's okay. But I, I do really like country music. I think it's because there's, there's stories embedded in them. And one of them is, this, is a song about how his, this dad is hanging out with his son, and, and one day his son all of a sudden just drops a swear word. And he's like, absolutely appalled. How could my son know this swear word? And he asks him, and he says, well, I learned it from you, Dad. <laughs> And those of us who spend any amount of time with children know that oftentimes the good, the bad, and the ugly of what their parents do is often picked up by them. This was driven home to me, especially when I was a waiter in college. I noticed something. Every single parent seemed to want their kid to say please and thank you. But there was one surefire way to know that they would. The parents that said please and thank you, their kids always also followed suit. But then the other parents would be like, say please, say thank you. And it would be like, well, maybe if you said it, they would. But <laughs> I want a tip, so I never bothered to point that out. <laughs> but like we said, everybody who spent time with children know this sort of inclination for the children to start to imitate their parents. And that's where we start this morning. St. Paul exhorts the Ephesians, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted as a beloved child of God. I think that's an amazing fact that we often don't spend nearly enough time thinking about. You have been adopted and made a son or daughter of God the Father. If you are not in Christ, you are invited to put Christ on and become the child of God. Think about that amazing invitation for a moment. But there's more to this. And St. Paul picks up on this. Because you are that beloved child, you are called to learn from your heavenly Father. And what specifically does St. Paul pick up that we are supposed to be learning from God? What are we supposed to be imitating? It's not his omnipresence or his omnipotence. It's not the fact that he knows everything or is everywhere. But it's that he loves. He has perfect love. And love is one of those strange things that if you went out onto the street of Prescott and asked ten people what love is, you'd probably get nine to ten different answers. But for those of us who are in Christ, we have a definition of love. So St. Paul goes on to spell this out. Walk 
as Christ, who gave himself up for you. Now, if we, have to, we want to understand this, so we want to back out just a little bit and then turn to Philippians, where St. Paul describes what it means to be like Christ. He writes in Philippians 2, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Another one of my good friends in town who's also a pastor has, I think, three sons. And one of his sons one day was like, have you ever been partway through your sermon and really needed to go to the bathroom? (laughs) This question has often crossed my mind, by the way. If you're really curious, you can ask Ben. He has a story. (laughs) We know that we have human limitations. We have to stop to go to the bathroom. We have to take naps or sleep through the night. We get hungry and we need to eat. God does not have these human limitations. He does not have to stop and take a nap partway through the day because he's tired, because it's been a long and busy day. He doesn't need to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner as we do. He doesn't need to stop and take a bathroom break to be crude. But Christ gave up that state, that state of being limitless, and came and dwelt among us. I don't think we often stop to think about the the depth and breadth of that. Think about the fact that God who reigns in heaven, the second person of the Trinity, gave up that limitlessness and took on the limitations that you and I struggle with day in and day out. There's this movie a while back, I think it was actually literally called Limitless. I don't know if anybody saw that. But where somebody learned, figured out to have, make a pill that made them functionally limitless. And he was able to do all kinds of things. He became rich, he solved many problems, because he could just keep going and going without those limits that we so often face that slow us down. It's like that, if we need another illustration. It's like that limitlessness was given up by Christ so he could experience the limits that we face, so that he could sympathize with you and I, so that he knows what it's like to be finite. But he was also obedient. If you're a human being, you've probably struggled, as I have, with being obedient to God. We struggle, we often want what we want, and we want it now. And God sometimes says no. Or sometimes says, no, my dear child, what you want is not good for you. Do not do it. But Christ was obedient perfectly. He was obedient even unto the death, death on the cross. And that final point was the ultimate act of his love. He gave up his rightful place. He came and he dwelt among us out of love. He humbled himself out of love, and he died for you and I out of love. 
This giving up that we see in Philippians is what love in Christ is. And Christ modeled that for you. There's an ancient book called the Didache. I always mispronounce it, so if somebody's like, oh, that's not how you pronounce it, sorry. It's, it's in fact the most ancient book that we have of Christian writing outside of Scripture itself. It was written probably sometime in the late 1st century or early 2nd century. And the first line, first two sentences actually, which is what I'm going to read of the book, are terrific. It starts this way. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. But a great difference, there is a great difference between the two ways. The way of life then is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, your neighbor as yourself. And all things, whatsoever you you would, would, should not occur to you. Do not also do to one another. In other ways, the way of life is love, as we've just discussed. And we've just gone over what this looks like. To live in the way of life is to love as Christ loved us. But now we must talk about the way of death. And that is slightly less pleasant. I think one of you once told me that Dante noted that all love, but some love, is misaligned. And that's where Paul is driving at today. We should not believe that Christians alone love well. In fact, probably all of us have a neighbor who is not a Christian who is great at loving us well. This is not what we're saying at all. In fact, God's grace extends love to all people, whether they accept it or not. God's grace forms hearts so that goodness can be done in the world, although some, as we well know, reject this violently. Christ, but Christ sets us to focus on how we love and that we love things well as he loved us. But the rule of the world tells us something else. Get what you can. <clears throat> and, then, and that is what St. Paul turns his focus to. As he tells us to flee from sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, we probably didn't wake up this morning and think, man, I really hope that we talk about sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness in church. Apparently Ben did, which... Remember, I have better hearing than you, Ben. And now I've lost my train of thought. Probably, probably outside of Ben... Most of us didn't wake up thinking we really want to talk about these, these sins, or any sin for that matter. But the reality is, is, if we never talk about sin, how bad it is, what it does to our soul, then we won't recognize the gravity of it, and we won't know to flee from it. And so sometimes we must dive into these painful and dreadful areas. Sexual immorality is any sexual indulgence outside of marriage, in particularly using sexual appetites as means to gratification without any sense of responsibility. 
And to be blunt, and to make perhaps an uncomfortable statement, this can even include the use of pornography. The reason that sexual immorality is bad is that it fails to love others and to love God. Now, why is this? It's looking, there are several reasons that we can think of, and we can make an even longer list than I made, but it's looking to someone for comfort that can only come from God. It's looking for cheap pleasure or entertainment to fill your mind instead of filling your mind with the good things of God. It misuses the image of God that's found in another person. And in many cases, it damages the covenant of marriage. Impurity of mind touches on that set, one of those points. And, and likewise, it's the failure to love others and to love God well. But the question is, what has captured your mind? Is it the goodness and beauty of God? Or is it something else? Covetousness, likewise, is, to fail, is the failure to love one another, to love others and God. And why is that? Because it says, what God has provided for me is not enough. I want what my neighbor has as well. It destroys the thankful heart that is so much the foundation of our life in Christ. And it makes us dependent upon ourselves, not upon God. And so we can see the weight of these three sins and why Paul points them out. But there's more to it. He says they must not even be named among you. Now what he's doing here is calling up something from the Old Covenant, calling up something from Exodus 23, 13, where he looks and says, don't follow where God points out to Moses and Moses to the people. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard upon your heart, upon your lips. In other words, Moses is saying to the people, don't even speak the name of other gods. Keep pure in front of Yahweh. Now what we have to understand about Ephesus is that it was home to the temple of Artemis, a Greek god. And it seems like somehow this, this, the worship and, and actions in the temple of Artemis eventually slowly infiltrated the church in Ephesus from time to time. And that he didn't want anything from that temple to infiltrate their worship. Our worship to God must be pure. Not worshiping other gods, not worshiping the other gods of the world. Is, God, is, the, is the God of love, the God of scripture, the God of your heart, or is there something else? Matthew gives us a hint to how we should understand this. He writes, do not, or he writes, do not see, do you not see? that whatever goes out into your mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. Another way to think of this, another challenge that you might want to think through, is what are you thinking about right now? Are you hoping that we go deeper? Are you hoping that I speed up and finish as quickly as I can so that you can get back to coffee hour 
or get home to do something else. So what does it look like to forsake the gods of this world? St. Paul carries on and writes, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So often we can find it's easy to slip into these bad habits that reveal the nature of our heart. But St. Paul doesn't leave us hopeless. He gives us a remedy. Thanksgiving. Be thankful. And there are tools that we can use to be thankful. Remember, remember what God has done for you already in Christ. Remember all that, is God, all that God has done in the world. Remember what God is doing in your life right now. And then he says, there is no inheritance of the kingdom of God in, and Christ if we do not flee these things. To put this another way, it is the way of death. How can we expect to inherit and to live in the kingdom of God if we do not love the things that are of God? If we have not allowed God to put his love in us? Have you ever taken a flashlight and shined it under your couch or, or worse, underneath an appliance that you haven't moved in a long time? It's, it's horrifying. It's not a fun activity, but it's probably a healthy activity that we should do from time to time so our houses aren't filled with dust. But you know what I mean. You can actually see like the contours of the dust underneath that appliance. I feel confident sharing that because I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a universal experience. <laughs> we shift a little focus here. And God, as God calls us out of that darkness that we have just traveled through and into the light. Light, as we know, exposes icky things. Exposes things that are hidden in darkness. But light does more than just expose them. It extinguishes them. It condemns them. We need that flashlight to stretch our metaphor probably beyond where we should stretch it so that we know where we need to sweep to get the ickiness out of there or if we're really ambitious to pull it out, pull out the fridge and actually clean underneath it. There's an effort that has to be put into it. Light has to be shown so we can see where that dust is. And this is what Paul points to. And again and again, Scripture points to it. St. John expands upon this in several different places. He writes that this is the message that we have been heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is the light that shines in our lives, that exposes those icky places, those places that need healing, redemption, cleansing. When you come into the presence of of God, all that is within you is exposed. This may sound scary, but if you've talked to somebody who struggled with a deep sin and been freed from it, he or she will share how incredible it is to now walk in the light of God, to be let loose of that incredible weight 
around their shoulder because they are now in the light of God. But that light means something more. That light, Paul tells us, is inapproachable, whom no one else can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. In other words, when we say that God is light, it doesn't mean he's like our flashlight or some bright, shining thing that we see. What Paul means, what John means, is that God is holiness. The inexplicable perfection that makes God, God. God is holy and beyond our comprehension in some very real way. But he shines that light upon us when Christ came into the world. He write, John again writes, in him, that is Jesus, was life. And that life was the light in, of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ is the light of God come into the world to overcome your darkness and my darkness. Christ is the light that put that darkness away. If now you feel the weighed down by all that we've talked about, your past or present, your past sins or present struggles feel like they're too much to bear, take heart, dear friends. We remember that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The light has exposed sin, but the light has also overcome sin, and that is the good news. And we end this lesson today with a hymn. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We start with two commands. Awake, arise. The command is that we get up God has called you to wake, and he is the one who has woken you up from your sin. But not only that, he has made you alive. Just as God, Christ made Lazarus alive and rose him from the grave, he says to us, arise. And the action is a command, but it is a completed command. Arise. It is done. You are alive, no more a slave. <clears throat> and finally, Christ's light will shine upon you. Christ will bring you into his light. Christ will make you holy. Christ will teach you what it is to love truly. My friends, St. Paul this morning calls you and I away from the way of death and into the way of life, the way of Christ's love. My friends, be made alive in Christ. Be, made, be imitators of his image. Be made to love by his power, by his grace. Be imitators of God, your Father. 
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.